This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 3, 2, 1. The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here, as always. We're going to talk a little bit about the sordid, sleazy, and tawdry election that is happening right now. But I can also promise you we will be hitting on a bit of Cuba talk. We'll also be talking about uh, what's going on in Yemen. We have all sorts of things to discuss, so I'm very much looking forward to mixing it up today on the show. So those of you who are like, I can't take any more politics, just a little bit, just, just, a, little, just a little smidgen, just a smidgen of politics today. Maybe, maybe more than a smidgen, but we'll have a bit. We will mix it up. We will cover more subjects, uh, more varied subjects than, well, I would offer to you probably any other three-hour radio show in existence. How about that? That covers day-to-day politics and uh, current events. I mean, I can't prove that, but let's just go with it because it makes me happy to say it. Okay, a few things about the Clinton situation that I want to get out there. There's this stuff that we're finding out, stuff from the WikiLeaks revelation. Some of it's also just FOIA requests that are finally coming out or being released before the election. And it's telling us the sort of stuff we already knew. For example, it's telling us that Hillary Clinton is not liked by the diplomatic security agents who were assigned to protect her while she was secretary of state. That, I'm sure, surprises exactly no one. Uh, It's also told us that Podesta and some of the others, oh, depending on which email tranche we're talking about here, some of them have been discussions that show what contempt the elite Democrats have for people who are... uh, people of faith, evangelicals, uh, they sort of sneer at Catholics as being the uh, Christians who want to still be considered normal, all this all this stuff that's come out. I mean, we could sit here and talk about it for many hours. It hasn't obviously had much of an impact in the polls, hasn't affected much of anything about Hillary's chances of winning. And as I've said to you before, part of the problem with the email revelations is that at this point, no matter what comes out, it doesn't matter. At this point, there's it's not conceivable that there's anything you would find in those emails that would change the minds of the people who have decided that they are with her, so to speak. They're not just ready for Hillary. They are going for Hillary. They are in the tank for Hillary. They're going to make sure Hillary Clinton wins. 
or do everything in their power, at least, to make sure Hillary Clinton wins. And so, with all of that, we, of course, have to turn our attention for a moment to what's going on in the Trump campaign. You had a rather lengthy interview, uh, well, not rather lengthy, it was in, in some depth, on CNN with uh, Melania Trump, during which she talked about many things. One is that she wasn't expecting the media to be quite so horrible to her husband. I have to say, I, I'm well, maybe she shouldn't have known, but everybody else should have known. We've talked about it many times here before, that the primary was all about... I actually think that, that the Democrats were rooting for Trump in the primary because they knew he'd be so easy to destroy, to destroy in the general. And he was great for ratings, so it was a no-brainer for them. It was obvious. The way to go was wall-to-wall Trump, and that's what they did. But as soon as it became an issue of who would be the next commander-in-chief when the power transfer from Obama to somebody else was an issue, then it was all about destroying Trump as fast as they possibly could, as thoroughly as they could. And that's what they've been up to. But so Melania is sitting down. And, you know, I have to say, I don't think she gets enough credit. And, it's, and I think it's really unfair that there was that pl- sort of plagiarized speech section and the I mean, that was clearly her speech writer. I don't know how a speech writer could. That, that's really just a, a, a moment of of the dysfunction that has characterized the Trump campaign apparatus. I don't know how a speech writer could be so stupid and so lazy as to lift a section of a previous first lady's uh, convention speech. I don't I don't know how you get any dumber than that. I don't know if I ever mentioned this on the show. It reminds me of a of a kid. Um, well, two of them, one of whom I really, really disliked at Amherst uh, in my college. And they both failed. Uh, they fa- I forget. I don't even remember what the class was. It was a gut class. It was like my my fifth class. I think I was taking Arabic as a fourth. And it was anyway, sophomore year. And they handed in the same paper, which is incredibly lazy and stupid right you you at least change around the words and they hand it in word for word the same paper but my favorite part of it because <laughs> the, the a friend of mine told me about this and the professor actually had a hard time believing that anybody could be this stupid is that it was one of these situations where everybody in the auditorium was sort of okay everyone oh yeah that's right we have that paper you know please turn it in here and they had a, a box in the front of the room they handed in the exact same paper just with different names on top of each other it's tough to get dumber than that, right? It's, it's tough to be more inept at cheating than that. And to have a speechwriter who not just plagiarizes something, but plagiarizes another former, or, or rather a, a first lady's convention speech, uh, t- to me is, is an unforgivable stupidity. But not for Melania Trump. I don't think it's fair to blame Melania, especially in an era when so many, we, we have really erased the lines of what plagiarism is and is not. It's very hard to, you know, I push people on this, especially people in in my industry, and they think they know what the distinctions are, but not really. I said, so you can pay somebody to write a book for you and not have their name anywhere on it, and that's fine. And people say, oh, what if it's a a public figure? Okay, what if it's not a noteworthy historical public figure? What if it's just someone paying someone else to write a book? That's not plagiarism. But if you were paying someone to write a doctoral thesis under your name, that would be plagiarism. So where's really the distinction? And, and by the way, everybody I know in media disagrees with me on this, and I think they're all wrong. I, I, don't, I don't care that what's accepted practice and what's not accepted practice. I look at the ethics of this 
the presentation of something as your skill and your work when it is not. And I find that very troubling. This is a total diversion, I know, from Melania and Trump and the campaign. But it's an argument I like to have with friends of mine because who, who work in sort of this field of either writing or journalism or punditry. Um, just because it's sort of like when I tell everybody that Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan are terrible, although a lot of you agree with me on that. Sometimes I like to stir the pot a little bit. You know, I like to get a reaction out of people. And when I tell them that there's no distinction between paying somebody to write your term paper and paying somebody and not crediting them in any way to write your book, if it's a collaborative effort, okay. You know, you don't have to have percentages on the front cover that says so-and-so did 80% of this and so-and-so did 20%. But there has to be some group credit. I'm talking about when people, you know, I'm pretty sure some of Hillary Clinton's books that are out there, it just says Hillary Clinton as though she's the author. She hasn't written a word of it. Probably hasn't even seen it. Oh, she's a historical figure, really? Such an important historical figure that we need 17 books under her name? Oh, we're going to have some Hillary fun in a second here. Don't worry. It's the one good part about this election is I get to say, wow, at least they're not overdoing it on the Hillary criticism. I feel like I can be useful to that end. Uh, but Melania sat down with uh, with with Anderson Cooper and had a, and they were talking, of course, about it's all about how Trump is a a sexist and a misogynist and the worst guy ever and you know et cetera et cetera yada yada. And I don't think she gets enough credit for being in a second language, pretty uh, pretty poised and and art and art for somebody speaking a second language articulate. Uh, she's surprisingly good in interviews in a, in her non native tongue. Uh, I don't think she gets enough credit. I think there's been an effort to make her seem uh, to make her seem like this sort of uh, foreign airhead model. I don't buy that at all. Actually, the more I know about her, the more I see her in interviews. And you know, look, I'm, I'm not pretending she's a, uh, a rocket scientist for NASA either. But I mean, give the woman some give the woman some credit. I think she speaks like four languages, and she's impressive actually in her own way. Uh, and the the media. Has large, you know, they they published those photos of her, which had already been published. Um, they haven't gone after her, certainly the same way they've gone after Trump. But I do think that there's a bit of a bit of snickering behind her back that happens with a lot of journalists. I don't think Anderson was doing that in the interview. I'm just saying others have certainly been willing to try to make her look foolish. Uh, but she has to defend her husband when it comes to women. Uh, this is where she talks about Billy Bush, who no longer works for the Today Show. Which, by the way. The next time I get fired from a job, if I can get like $10 million as a as a bye-bye, I'm okay with that. So any, any, any employer I have who wants to say adios to me, but give me a check for $10 million on the way out, I'm going to be okay. I'll take that. That's, that's going to make the boo-boo all better. Uh, Melania says Billy Bush egged on her husband, made sexually aggressive remarks. Play it. I said to my husband that, you know, the language is inappropriate. It's not acceptable. And um, I was surprised because that is not the man that I know. And as you can see from the tape, uh, the cameras were not on. It was only a mic. And I wonder um, if they even knew that the mic was on because they they were kind of a a boy talk. And uh, he was lead on, like uh, egg on from uh, the host to say um, dirty and bad stuff. Is that language you had heard him use before? No. No, that's why I was surprised uh, because I said, like, I don't know that person that would talk that way. So this is how we're supposed to make our decision about who the next leader of the free world is 
whether we thought that the uh, the gross language from Trump was was too gross to vote for him. I mean, the media is really latched onto this. You have, you have to admit they've they've stayed away from his major policy issues and just turned it all into an attack of isms, racism, sexism, uh, Islamophobia, which isn't an ism, but maybe we can come up with uh, an ism that would cover that one. Essentially, Trump is a bad person and bad people vote for him because they understand the psychology, the mass psychology of elections. It's not about the fact that Obamacare is terrible. It's ruining your health care. It's making your health care, even if you don't have Obamacare, more expensive. It's making a lot of people who would be fantastic doctors not go into medicine. It's not about the dissolution of the political culture and just general culture of this country because of a near open border status over half a million people overstaying their visas every year, no interior enforcement, the loss of jobs overseas without any real plan to try to bring uh, quality jobs for Americans in that middle rung, which is a vast majority of us, back to this country. Those aren't the debates or discussions we're having. Instead, they want to have Melania Trump on and in a in in one of her several languages that she speaks, try to defund, uh, defend her husband for being a sexist. By the way, when was the last time that uh, you saw Hillary Clinton sit down and get asked by a major member of the media, is Bill Clinton a rapist? Is he a rapist? Not is he somebody who says naughty or gross or grotesque things about women behind closed doors sometimes. Is he actually somebody who should have been criminally prosecuted for a sexual felony offense? Has anyone in the media asked Hillary Clinton that this entire this entire campaign season? We know that it can't be an issue of the timing because what Trump said 15 years ago is coming back to haunt him in this election. I mean, the media has debased itself, and I just sort of wish that there were, or no, I do wish, that many of the people, many of the conservatives out there who have real influence, who are really successful, and see what's going on, think to themselves, you know, instead of just... Uh, either sitting on the sidelines and being happy and 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 not getting into this fight, uh, there needs to be and there needs to be a new new media. I mean, there have to be efforts to actually create conservative uh, conservative voices that will be able to combat this stuff because this election has just turned into a media war. That's all it is. It's not about policy. It's not about record. It's just a straight up media war, and the Democrats are winning. Because they still control 80 to 90 percent of the media. And so they're winning. And they're going to keep winning. Even with somebody as odious and completely uh, morally decrepit as Hillary Clinton. I want to talk about how grotesque she is in a second because that will be fun. And then actually later on in the show we'll revisit it with one of my good friends who's written a fantastic column on it. So we're going to do some. Uh, I wouldn't. It's not Hillary bashing. It's Hillary vetting. That vetting her sounds like bashing is her problem, not ours. We'll get back into that, though, in just a minute. Team, I'll be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. 
Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. The Buck Sexton Show. Here's another question you won't hear me ask, but I think they would be on firm ground at least asking it. Is Hillary Clinton a, a kleptomaniac? Is she somebody who has a, a psychological compulsion to steal? I don't mean to steal honor or to sort of steal in some grandiose sense of the term, you know, to she, the, the theft of American greatness. No, no, I mean actually like steal stuff, things, physical objects of some monetary value. I ask because in the New York Post, they have, uh, again, in these sort of FBI documents that have come out for, that have been FOIA'd, uh, there's a belief that Hillary Clinton tried or there's an allegation, I should say, not a belief, that Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, wanted to steal furniture from the State Department. And here's the piece. Hillary Clinton swiped State Department furniture to decorate her Washington home. A former member of her security detail has alleged to the FBI. Early in Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State, she and her staff were observed removing lamps and furniture from the State Department, which were transported to her residence in Washington TV. An, an agent on the detail told the FBI... Uh, the accusations are part of 100 newly released pages of interview notes the F- of the FBI's investigation into Clinton's handling of classified material. Think about that for a moment, everybody. She's the Secretary of State. Now, keep in mind, this isn't when she left, quote, dead broke in the White House, and we'll get into what happened there, too. She's the Secretary of State, and she shows up at her new job at the State Department, or not, her, uh, not at the very beginning, but she's at her new job at the State Department. She's a cabinet official, very, very powerful post. And she's like, oh, I just like that lamp. I'm going to bring it home with me. I, I mean, this is this woman at this point in time is worth $100 million. She's like stealing office supplies. What's worse than that? She's stealing office furnishings. She's stealing office furniture. Just taking it home with her. And you might say, Buck, well, this is an unproven allegation. OK, you know, it's not an unproven allegation that she took uh, $190,000 Worth of this is from ABC News worth of China flatware rugs televisions sofas when they left the White House. One hundred ninety grand worth of stuff. They just, you know, threw it in sacks, brought along with them. Ah, I'll take that from the White House. They ended up paying back some portion of it. I think they paid eighty six thousand dollars for the gifts. Once this, of course, came out, if it hadn't come out, they would have just kept all the stuff. But you're like, what, what would Hillary Clinton, I mean, she's just, she's been first lady, Clinton, Bill Clinton's been in office for eight years. What do they need so badly that they had to steal it from the White House? The gifts in question, according to ABC News, a kitchen table, four chairs, a needlepoint rug, 
two sofas, an easy chair, an ottoman worth $19,000, by the way, lamps, a sofa. I mean, what? They, they literally looted the White House the last time they were the president and first lady. And now they want to be the president and first husband. And they're going to literally and figuratively loot the White House again. It will be for sale again. They will steal from it again. This is who they are. This is what they do. Does no one else find this just deplorable? There's that word. Disgusting. It, It does seem like a compulsion, doesn't it? Remember, when we're talking about her as Secretary of State taking stuff, and she's worth $100 million. Money is no object. I mean, she's, you know, she's rich beyond our wildest dreams. And she has to steal, like, lamps from the State Department? State Department lamps aren't that nice. She feels the urge to do that? Why? Because she likes to. Because there's some part of her that derives pleasure from being dishonest, from being a grifter, from breaking the law, from being a thief. And this is the mature choice for the next president of the United States. This is the one that the media is all, oh, finally, there'll be some, there'll be an adult in the Oval Office instead of that Trump nonsense. Well, I got to tell you, uh, having somebody who seems to have a compulsion for theft, as well as graft and corruption, doesn't make me feel all warm and fuzzy when it comes to our next president. Uh, And here we are once again. Hillary can't, I, I think it's true, she can't help herself. She'd rather steal it than pay for it, everybody, even when she has the money. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. the Buck Sexton Show. I just, I just can't imagine I'm the only person that, that pulls these things together and thinks maybe Hillary actually has like a problem. Well, she has a lot of problems, but when it comes to stealing things, seems to me like that would be noteworthy, right? That would be something that we'd want to discuss about the next president of the United, possible president of the United States. I know everyone's trying to declare this election already over. We'll have to see. There's a debate tomorrow. You never know. Up to this point, it feels like it hasn't really made much sense. So up to this point, it feels like anything has been possible in its own weird way. Maybe it's not all finished. Um, but yeah, Hil- Hillary, think about that as well. Hillary and her husband looted the White House on the way out. And then she came into the State Department and tried to do the same thing. This is just who she is. This is how she operates. Um, I have to say, I, I, I don't. Why is this not asked? Isn't this a worthwhile question? Um, I, I think when we look at this, <clears throat> we have to ask ourselves. There are so many fascinating segments that are being left on the uh, on the sort of cutting room floor. And that's because they would do real damage to the Clinton brand, even if she becomes uh, president, even if she becomes somebody who or rather, even if she's able to beat Trump. Remember, it's not just about beating Trump. They also are protecting her going forward because they want her to be 
Uh, they want her to be in a position to get her agenda through. Uh, hey, we got a, a special guest calling in with a little bit of a personal anecdote to, to throw in the mix. The Godfather himself, Michael Pelka, at StuntBrain on Twitter, host of his own show on the Blaze Radio. Michael Pelka joins us now. What's up, Godfather? Well, Buck, in spite of our differences about Nobel Prize winning Bob Dylan, uh, I had to share a story with you about the uh, Clintons' thievery in the White House. Please do. I was in uh, D.C. the night President Obama flew to Cairo to give the speech in 2009, getting an extended tour from a friend who's a Secret Service agent. And as he walked us into the area by the Oval Office, he pointed out a a uh, Norman Rockwell painting that was on the wall and said it was a gift from Steven Spielberg and that uh, we were lucky to have it. And my guest and I, Montel Williams, were both uh, laughing, going, yeah, why? And he said, well, the Clintons took it with them when they left. And this picture or this painting was apparently worth quite a lot of money. The, the number four million sticks in my head, but I can't be sure. And he said that the archivist had to actually call the Clintons and go, look, you can, you can deal with whatever on the furniture, but we got to have the painting back. It belongs to the American people. So it was returned quickly. I, I just, that's, these people are like, they're like burglars who are living in the White House. I mean, they're just looking for stuff to steal. Yeah, everything, it's, you know, uh, when we were at the convention, one of the places we stayed actually had a price list if you wanted to take everything from the towels to the alarm clock with you. I think we need to put that in the White House just in case they return. And, and, you know, especially when we get to, I don't know if you saw these allegations about the Secretary of State specifically, but or, or when she was Secretary of State, she was taking stuff home from Maine State. Uh, that's That's also crazy. I mean, she's worth $100 million, her and her husband. They live in mansions, and they need to – she sees something in her office that, that is government property, and she's like, I'm going to take that home. By the way, if you are uh, – you know, if you're a federal government employee and you try any of these shenanigans, you get into big trouble, by the yeah, way. Yeah, imagine you taking home a, a ream of paper from the office uh, as a government employee. I bet you get called out for that. Well, I mean, you know, if you if you there there are any number of minor um, misuses of government resources when I was when, even when I was in the CIA and they told you it was just an automatic suspension. I mean, if you if you did anything. Oh, and by the way, these guys who, uh, you know, who go out there and, and they, they mix. I mean, if you were to mix, for example, private expenses on a on a business trip, if you work at the Pentagon or any of these places uh, and you don't separate it out. I mean, the headaches you have to go through. You know, I think I had like a seven dollar cab ride w- once that you know uh, it was a private expense, but it was it was mixed in with the per- with the public expense. It's just a nightmare, and they take all that stuff so seriously. And with the Clintons, they're lifting, as you say, maybe a four million dollar painting from the White House. I mean, that's that's beyond grand larceny. That's like super larceny. That's some next yeah, it, level stuff. It, it was professional grade theft. That's all. That's all you can call it. And if you want to see what it looks like, the next time you watch Glenn's Oval Office. The painting is on the wall. It looks like there's an American flag there, and it's a beautiful painting. He has a replica of it. But they did get called on it, had to bring it back, and I love that story. Uh, would you, are you surprised at how obvious the media is being in it? Look, we all knew they'd be biased. We're not a bunch of kids that, you know, that, that are, ooh, this is, the media is not playing fair. But it just feels like after this, uh, well, I don't know, maybe people would have said the same thing after Obama the first time around. But I think there's a difference between – 
love for Obama and ignoring ignoring any real vetting of him and just the destruction of Trump and the, the drowning out of, of any of Hillary's already very well-known scandals. I, I think there is a difference. There's, there's an avalanche more of more information when it comes to Clinton compared to Obama. What did we have with Obama? A lack of experience in Reverend Wright. That was most of it. But if you look at this, we do have 25 to 30 years of history with Clinton, and they're just choosing to look the other way, even with all the WikiLeaks stuff that's out there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's amazing. Um, I, I don't know, man. I, I think uh, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of I think there's going to have to be a lot of after action report that we go into after you know when this election is done. And just look at the I think people will look at the coverage and they'll just say, wow, this really is. I mean, the Democrat machine in the media is alive and well. It really is. Well, if you've read and I'm sure you have gone through the WikiLeaks and looked at the, the connections to all the people, the off the record cocktail party with the biggest names in TV news, the Maggie Haberman considered a safe source to plant the story. It just stinks. And it, it shows you there is no objectivity within the ranks of the most elite levels of television and newspaper journalism it's frightening yeah i have to say it's it's it would never occur to me to write a piece uh and run it by some government official i mean other than for the purposes of making sure there's no classified in it or something but i mean it would never i'd never run it by a government official just offhand back channel for fun to make sure that they weren't going to be upset by it i mean how, how much more complicit in the Democrat Party statism can you be as a journalist than saying, hey, is this going to cause any problems for you guys? I just want to make sure it doesn't because I heart you. Yeah, and I want to go to the Christmas party uh, and the inaugural balls. This is the, the scary thing. And people talk about what Trump would do to the media. Yes, that concerns me, the way he deals with uh, demonizing the mainstream media. But in many cases, he's now being proved to be justified. <laughs> so... You know, I, I'm scared. Both of them scare me, Buck. What am I supposed to do? I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't have answers. Just a lot of questions and the occasional and the occasional commie bear appearance. Mike, when is your show on for everybody listening? Uh, Saturday mornings from six to nine. Pure Opelka. We kick off the fresh day of programming every weekend. All right. Rock and roll. Check out Pure Opelka. And, and, and Buck. Good to talk to you, Godfather. Mike Opelka at Stuntbrain on Twitter. My man. High five. Thank you so much. 888-900-3393-TEAM. Uh, if you want to call in, phone lines are open. We've got a lot more. Stay with me. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. All right, where is uh, Schindler? to the Buck Sexton Show. So not only do you have, on the Trump side of things, everyone, well, Trump and many of his campaign surrogates saying that there's a lot of voter fraud going on and there's all this talk about voter fraud. And uh, Actually, do we have a, don't we have a soundbite about this? We have, uh, yeah, Trump going off at a, at a rally saying voter fraud is very common. Play it. Please. If you would. They even want to try to rig the election at the polling booths. And believe me, there's a lot going on. Do you ever hear these people? They say there's nothing going on. People that have died 10 years ago are still voting. Illegal immigrants are voting. I mean, where are the street smarts of some of these politicians? 
They don't have any, is right. So many cities are corrupt, and voter fraud is very, very common. Um, there is voter fraud, and it's preposterous the Democrats uh, and the left media still pretend that, that there is – they will say, actually, there's no such thing as voter fraud, which is not true. And then they'll say, OK, fine, because you can just do a Google search and find instances of voter fraud. They'll say, well, there's not enough voter fraud to change an election. And then you'll pull up, say, the Minnesota uh, Senate election between Al Franken and uh, Coleman, which came down to hundreds, a few hundred votes. And then they'll say, OK, well, you know, next question. I mean, they'll move on. They don't really care. The reality doesn't matter to them. They do not care. They just have a narrative and they want to stick to it no matter what. Uh They've got this going on, though. Trump's saying that there's going to be voter fraud. And I don't think this is uh, helpful. The media is, of course, turning this into Trump knows he's going to lose. So that's one part of the narrative. It's interesting to watch how this, this they churn this stuff out of the various newsrooms and, uh, and you know, punditry organizations posing as, as news organizations. Uh, they also have the Hillary is pushing into red states narrative going now, too. Uh, which I'm sure, I mean, look, they can point to the ad buys and such to show that that's what's going on. But Hillary is now, uh, according to the narrative, so confident she's going to win that she's buying up ads in Arizona, uh, where there is a growing Hispanic population, Latino population, uh, in Indiana, in Missouri. These are all states. I mean, Indiana is just so she can say that she's going into Pence's backyard and, you know, pulling out his petunias being mean. Uh, but this is what the narrative is, because as you understand it already, of course, perception becomes the reality here. If everybody starts to think that not only is this all over, but it's going to be a wipeout, that affects turnout on the Trump side and that affects turnout on the Hillary side. People like to vote for a winner. People want to be a part of that. If they think that Hillary is going and I know you could argue, oh, well, if they, they think it's in the bag. She's that people won't show up, but there are people and that's that's true, I'm sure, in some cases. But there are also people who, you know, it's like your friends who used to who used to root for the Los Angeles Lakers during the Kobe and Shaq days or Michael Jordan during the Chicago Bulls days or uh, the Patriots, even though they've never set foot in New England. Plus, honestly, come on, guys, rooting for the Patriots, even if you live in New England. I don't know. Uh, Those people like to root for winners. They like to be on the winning team. They like to be a part of that. And the narrative as it's being formed right now is that the Clintons have this thing all sewn up, but or I should say Hillary Clinton has this thing all sewn up, but we know it is a, is a twofer. Uh, and on top of that, she's going to kind of run the table on the Republicans, or at least she's going to go even deeper into red territory than anybody would have thought possible as recently as maybe three months ago, that she is in fact going to be the one who... Um, who doesn't just defeat Trump, but annihilates Trump in a general election. And this is why you're seeing these stories popping up now about this. It's whether it's true or not, nobody will remember, right? I mean, it, it, they'll say, Oh, well, everybody's wrong about the election at different times. So let's not get all caught up in those details. It's about forming this perception in people's minds that Trump is going to lose. He's going to lose big. Hillary's going to be a huge, a huge winner here. And as I said, it's not the the margin of victory matters for Hillary, especially because I I don't think she's going to win the House. It'll be tight on the Senate side. Um, She's going to need to if she has a squeaker against Trump, uh, then you're going to have 
the sort of as the Democrats call it, the obstructionism is going to be very strong going into 2017 uh, and beyond. They're not she's not going to have a mandate. She's going to sort of hobble into the Oval Office and going to have to work with the Republican opposition, which she's not going to want to do because she's an ideologue or at least she used to be. I think she might remember some of that during her uh, final sort of political act here, which is being which would be president of the United States. So the, you'll see those stories popping up now, along with the, oh, the polls are so dis, the polls show such a distance between the two. There's not going to be anything that uh, that can be done to change this. You're going to see, oh, and Hillary's going to win some big red states. And, uh, oh, Trump is just getting ready for Trump TV, which that would be interesting. Uh, I wonder how that's going to end up looking if it does, in fact, become a thing. Um, but. Keep in mind, we do have a, a debate. To, I haven't really talked about it at all. We'll talk about it a bit more tomorrow. Um, but we do have a debate coming up that could shift things a little bit. And I think the Democrats have gone from panic uh, at one point over the recognition, the realization that Hillary was such a flawed candidate that it was going to take a concerted and completely bare-naked media effort to push her over the finish line. But they've they've sort of decided they're going to do it, and the, the, you know they'll eat their peas and they'll they'll push Hillary to the finish line. Um, it's not over yet, though. There is the possibility here that you see something interesting come out of this uh, this debate that that maybe at least makes it a close enough race that they that Team Clinton has to sweat things a bit. Right now, they're they're almost popping the they're almost popping the champagne corks. I mean, that's how. Confident, it seems, Team Clinton is that she's going to come out on top and, and be the winner here. And I just, I don't know. I think, uh, what is it? Hubris comes before the fall. It's like the lesson of Game of Thrones. You'll notice this, by the way. All the characters you love in Game of Thrones that end up getting whacked in one heinous way or another, it, it is hubris that brings them down. Whether it's, the, whether it's a, a hubris of their own honor or a, a hubris of their skill in battle or that's... That's the the fatal flaw in the heroes that you see there. And I think the Clinton campaign might be suffering from, right now at least, a little bit of of hubris. At least I'm hoping that's the case. Otherwise, it's going to be a long four years, my friends, and maybe a long eight. All right, we got a lot coming up in hour two, 888-900-3393. If you want to chat about anything, give me a ring. We'll talk about it. Uh, You can also send me your thoughts on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. I'll be back in just a few. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. We're joined now by Mark Serrano. He is a political strategist and founder and president of Proactive. Mark, great to have you. Hello, Buck. Good to hear you. So, Mark, you are a Trump supporter. A lot of people right now uh, are, well, they are worried about the prospects of Trump's, uh, well, 
whether he'll win or lose, we'll see. They're they're worried. They think he's going to lose. And uh, what would you say at this point? How how worried are you? Well, not worried. I, you know, I, I think if we have to put this uh, election into context, and the context is this is not a Republican against a Democrat. This is an election of the political class, the establishment of Washington, that has ravaged our economy and cost lives on the battlefield against freedom-loving people across the country. So if you start with that context, and we see it today with the collusion between the media establishment and the Clinton campaign released in WikiLeaks every day, if you start with that premise in that context, you recognize that uh, people have got to show up and vote in this election so we can change the, our course. Otherwise, otherwise, I fear that you know we're going to have a Supreme Court that is set in place for liberals for decades uh, and that our economy will continue to sink. And a lot of people across the country will suffer as they have for seven years. But what do you make of the polls that show Trump behind substantially? Almost all of the polls right now at the national level show Trump trailing considerably people have done comparisons with other elections when a candidate's behind by this much he's he's lost uh do, do you think he can make this up somehow or and and if so how yeah i my view on polls is take them to heart but don't believe them <laughs> it's very very contrarian right very very conflicted um you know the trump campaign has got to fight like hell every single moment of this campaign um and uh, and yet the media is going to paint this picture as if it's over because they're trying to suppress turnout among independents and Republicans and some Democrats so they don't vote for Donald Trump. So, you know, sure, the polls may be accurate. Some of them may be accurate. Uh, I don't believe they're all accurate. And I believe they fit perfectly, perfectly within this storyline that says, ah, it's over, forget about it. Donald Trump is going to lose because that's designed to uh, take people's heart out of this race and their conviction out of it so they don't show up on Election Day. Right now, at this point with the three weeks left, Buck, this is all about voter turnout. So everything you see candidates do in the debate stage tomorrow night, everything you see in TV ads is guided towards one objective. Either get your own voter turnout up or get your opponent's turnout down. Right. I have to say it's it's funny because the conventional wisdom is that the media wants a horse race because a horse race is better for ratings. And that makes sense. And yet here we are within a month of the election and they're telling us there's no horse race. They're, they're telling us that, you know, there's only one horse running and the other one is sort of gone off into the stands to uh, to hang out. Uh, that This is all over. I think it just shows how wedded they are to one candidate here, how, how in the tank they are uh, for Hillary Clinton. True. And it also shows you what's at stake. I mean, now we, we see through these emails uh, from the media to Clinton campaign operatives, we see the collusion going on that we, we've known is there, but now we see greater proof of it. Um, and you know there is fear in their part, because should Hillary Clinton lose this race, then that challenges their power structure. That challenges the way Washington works. And look, I tell you what, too, you know, from a conservative standpoint, measure the issues. Take a look at the positions that Donald Trump has taken. Take a look at the advisors he's brought on his team, from tax cuts to charter schools to energy independence to uh, uh, replacing and repealing Obamacare to building a wall. These are 
conservative positions. So what's interesting is for conservatives, I guess I would appeal to them by saying, look, these are conservative positions. Advisors on his team are strong conservatives, such as a Jeff Sessions, and Donald Trump will be held to conservative policies. If you have concerns about that, look at the alternative. And the alternative is two Supreme Court seats uh, coming up, uh, one right away, um, and tax increases and more of the same that we've had for seven years with, by the way, a likely recession in our midst in the next year or two. What do you say to those, though, who just feel like as an issue of ethics and morality supporting Trump, given the comments that he's on tape having made and uh, and, and given the way that he has sort of treated women, what do you say to those sort of values conservatives out there um, that just are having problems with that? They, they just can't do it. You know, they've decided I'm going to go I'm going to go the Evan McMullen route because that's the honorable vote or something. What how would you appeal to them? Because I think there's some listening right now. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And uh, look, I consider myself a movement conservative. Um, and so this is this is where we are today. Uh, I would say that, you know, Hillary Clinton wants to enable abortion on demand. I mean, just ha- having a conversation with my own 24-year-old daughter last night about abortion policy and the fact that the Democrats want Planned Parenthood to be funded more and they want abortion to be able to, to take place really up until birth. That, to me, is immoral. And, and there really can be very little argument that uh, Trump would never support that position. So I would just say that, you know, Trump's uh, comments on, on tape were crass. Of course they were. Everybody knows that. But look at the broader context in which those were released. It was by design. It was collusionary on the part of NBC News. And they are doing that because they want to protect their own base of power. So Ev McMullen may make, may make you feel good when you go in and you click his name uh, in the voting booth. But what you basically have effectively done has have, is further gotten us towards immorality uh, and towards a culture in decay because you're helping Hillary Clinton get to her biggest goal of her life. You think uh, what what if you were advising? I don't know. Do you actually speak directly to some members of the Trump campaign, or are you just advocating for Trump? I, uh, I have been uh, on a, an informal pro bono basis. I've been helping since May of 2015. So yeah. Oh wow. Okay. So so for quite a while. Campaign. So what yeah. what are you telling? What would you tell, or perhaps will you be telling, uh, the Trump camp about what needs to happen tomorrow, where he has his last really good clean shot at changing some minds and and perhaps uh, getting the American people to see Hillary for who she really is. Yeah. So uh, I would say. Um, I would say a couple of things. Uh, one is, in 2008, Donald Trump authored a book. It was called Never Give Up. And it's uh, paraphrasing now, you know, how I've taken my biggest uh, uh, failures and turned them into success. You know, people in the Trump campaign, more than anybody, need to be thinking about never giving up because it is this broader storyline from the media and the Democrats and the establishment political class that want us to believe this race is over. For Donald Trump in this debate, I believe he needs to come out strong and and fight because that's what got him the nomination people who are sick and tired of being damaged in this economy of of tax and spend and someone who's actually willing to turn the media back on their heels for the attacks against republicans and against people who love freedom and can't stand the way that our country is going so i would say he needs to fight just like he did in the second debate but he needs to articulate uh which he did fairly good job of in the second debate needs to articulate 
why Hillary Clinton will be a complete disaster for us and why his tax policies, his foreign policy – you know, take a look at foreign policy. Ronald Reagan's position was peace through strength, right? People are not giving enough attention to the fact that that is exactly where Donald Trump falls. He wants to build up our – in his own words, build up our military so we never need to use them. You know, that is pure Reaganism right there. And I think he needs to draw from that in the debate. Uh, you know, but most importantly, I think he just he needs to never give up. He needs to uh, not fall for the bait as well. We all know that now. It's easy to fall for the bait. He's such a fighter that he's not going to let any claim go unchallenged. And he needs to just be judicious in how he approaches those claims. Yeah, the first debate was a really a really poor showing, I have to say. He got way too caught up in Hillary talking about his business record from the past. And I, I was expecting much better from him. The second debate, I think he did uh, give more of, of what we'd expect from the, the Trump side of things. Should he? It, it, they're going to talk, I'm sure, and Hillary's certainly going to hammer him. I mean, I, I assume Chris Wallace is going to ask pretty straightforward and, and reasonably objective policy questions. But should he pivot, or at least should he take the opportunity when Hillary opens it up by going after him on being a sort of misogynist and a women hater, uh, go after Bill Clinton and Hillary's uh, complicity in trying to destroy the women that were speaking truth about Bill Clinton's serial, not just adultery, but sexual abuse, sexual assault, all kinds of things? Well, look, the Clintons are, are basically a, a, a you know criminal family over 30 years. Uh, and and they have uh, you know destroyed parts of our culture. I think it, I think it is important for him to turn the tables back on her. But I think it's more than just talking about Bill Clinton and how Hillary has dis- has destroyed women who have made claims against him. I think it is reminding people that she is another politician, all talk. Because the people who nominated Donald Trump were folks, many of whom have not participated in politics for a long time. We want those people to show up to the polls on November 8th. You know, if you take a look at the period in early August when the Clinton campaign was in the same position they're in now, they basically they went to the White House and they took measurements of the master staircase for Hillary's chairlift. That's how confident they were of victory. They're back in that place again. And what did Donald Trump do? He got disciplined. He was on message every day, in and out, didn't fall, you know, prey for a lot of these attacks against him. He's going to counterpunch. That's who he is. He's going to counterpunch. But he's got to keep it balanced and talk about you know, solutions for America and motivate those people who nominated him, who have not participated in the political process, who have suffered in this economy and don't want the same. Mark, what would you say earlier? You mentioned that you are, you consider yourself a movement conservative. Uh, just what would you say to, to fellow conservatives who are listening right now who would have a whole host of objections to Trump, including they say he's not really conservative, that he's been unethical in his business dealings, that he changes positions all the time. How would you try to uh, either, you know, calm those concerns or, or, or at least uh, balance them out, other than just saying Hillary is terrible, which we all know. Yeah, you know, okay, that's a good point, Buck. You know, when he made his apology about the remarks that were caught on the hot mic, he said after traveling this country for the past 15 months that voters have changed him. That was a remarkable acknowledgement from him. And I think it demonstrates that Donald Trump can change for the better. Hillary Clinton changes for the power. And so I would say to people who have those concerns is, you know, your guarantee is in Donald Trump's connection, personal connection with voters. I genuinely believe he meant that, that the voters changed him. They've touched him personally. He changed his position on abortion because of a, a friend's in, you know, personal experience 
with that you know, horrendous decision in their life. And so I believe he is a changed man. So I would say to conservatives who have concerns, don't fall prey to the storyline. This is cl- – look, did we really expect any different? We did, did, did we not expect the media to be in collusion with the Clinton campaign and to release with you know, precision timing certain revelations about the candidate? But here's what they're used to. The, the establishment and the media, they're used to Republicans uh, you know, rolling into a fetal position and just giving up and basically apologizing and going on their apology tour because they don't want to insult moderates. This is a man who's going to fight. And so conservatives need to recognize they should be in the game. You know, I'll be very candid with you, Buck. Back with the issue in National Review in the spring, the anti-Trump issue, I believe the mistake they made was they, they, they uh, took away the opportunity for them to influence this man's policies, the ultimate position and policies when it comes to governing. You know, the conservatives need to be in the game. The best way to do that is vote against Hillary Clinton, vote for Donald Trump, and then get in the game. Let's shape the final outcome of policies that affect our future. All right. Mark Serrano is, political, is a political strategist and founder and president of Proactive. Mark, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you for calling in. Okay, Buck. Thank you. Uh, let's take uh, Andy in North Carolina. What's up, Andy? Hey, Buck. How you doing today? I'm all hey. right, man. Thank you. Good. Um, yeah, uh, just in regards to the last caller, um, he was incorrect on a few things, but uh, I agree with a few points as well. Um, I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm actually uh, Democratic. I'm one of your Democratic listeners. You like? I got a Democrat in North Carolina. Listen, look at this. Big tent, the Freedom Hut is. Big tent. Go ahead. So I uh, just wanted to kind of kind of talk to about a few points. Um, let me just uh, talk to Mark's comment about the uh, Clintons on abortion. I think that that's been pretty clear. Um, I feel like the views of the Democratic Party aren't uh, – I don't think anybody's condoning uh, abortion up to the birth, date of birth. Um, I think they've all been pretty clear on following kind of Roe versus Wade. Um, and kind of where it is now, you know. Um, I know I'm sorry, you're, I'm, you're, you're missing. Wait, who, who's clear on what? What was that? Uh, with uh, on abortion, kind of the standings of where abortion is now. Um, yeah, I mean, of, uh, right now there are there are no there are effectively no limitations on abortion in terms of the the period at which one can have one. You you get that right? I'm pretty sure there is. I think it's uh, so many weeks. Was it twenty twenty three weeks? Twenty eight weeks? six weeks, something like that. Um, anyway, um, but Go I don't ahead. You personally, were I, I don't believe, I don't condone abortion. I just, my view on it and what I've taken from most Democrats that I talk to is they just don't want that to be a government choice is basically um, how that is. So, um, not that I personally or I think the Clintons are for abortion. I think they just don't want the government to make that choice. So. I, don't know. I think the Clintons are about as for abortion as, as any politicians are going to get. So I, I, how much more? I mean, NARAL gives Hillary uh, like, a, like an A+. So how are you going to get any better than Hillary on this issue? And she does well, want federal she, funds to go I, for abortion, by the way. Based, they, they want to get rid of... Um, uh, I'm forgetting the uh, the law uh, that that keeps federal funds out of abortion, but uh, they, they want to get rid of it. Well, the, I think that, that that should stay that way. I think the federal funds should stay out of abortion. I, I think that's something that should be covered more. 
um, that, that that's the fact. Because when you look at the data from Planned Parenthood, when the, when the funding's going there, which is for many things, and you see what their funding actually goes towards with contraceptives, with uh, breast exams, you know, all the different stuff. And I know um, there was quite a few years of my life where I was in um, kind of the poverty area and um, poverty income, and I know, you know, uh, we actually used Planned Parenthood um, for, uh, you know, kind of helping us with our first pregnancy. Um, and uh, I noticed with the data, when the funding is there, they actually, the following years, the um, abortion rate and... Yeah, I mean, look, so, some states some states say you can't go beyond, it can't be beyond six months. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, there are some limitations... All right, we we got it. All right, uh, Andy, they're they're yelling at me. I got to right. go into break. We'll take we'll take more of this on the other side. But thank you for calling in, team. We'll be right, right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Okay, so uh, just to make sure we're all clear on the facts, we had a caller before. Uh, I, look, I, I like having Democrats call in, and, and I want this to be as wide-ranging a discussion on the show every day as possible. So Democrats are listening. Call in. don't. And if you want to argue with me, you can argue with me, too. That's fine. Uh, but a few things. First of all, the Hyde Amendment was what I, I just blanked for a second. Pardon me on that. You know, sometimes it happens during live radio. The Hyde Amendment is what withholds uh, Medicaid funding from abortion. Hillary Clinton wants to get rid of the Hyde Amendment. She has said so. I believe it's in the Democratic Party platform this year. But I know Hillary wants to get rid of it. Um, also, 41 states have some form of abortion restriction, usually based on the, the period, the gestation uh, period in the pregnancy. Uh, that also means, by the way, there are nine states that have absolutely zero and none, which also means that you can just go to one of those states. So that's what I mean by you can actually get an abortion at any stage of, of a, pre- of a uh, pregnancy. Um, it just depends on where. Yeah, you might have to go a little further, but it is not. There is no... Um, uh, completely no federal ban. So there are nine states, Alaska, Colorado, D.C., Mississippi, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, Vermont, Virginia, do not have specific laws prohibiting abortion after a, a specific point in a pregnancy. So that's so that's what I mean by, yeah, there's some states that have gestational limits. Usually those, state, those limits are about six months in, uh, which anybody who knows anything about babies, fetuses, ultrasounds, it's like a, it's like a baby. As in, it's a baby. Anyway, I, I wanted to clear that up because there were, we were talking about that. We're going to get back into, uh, let's have some Hillary fun. And uh, we'll get into some other stuff coming up. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. So, team, yesterday we talked a bit about the State Department reclassifying or being pressured to declassify Clinton emails. And, you know, there are so many ways. You can look at this as a bureaucratic, and this is what the Democrats want. You can look at this as a sort of little bureaucratic back and forth, a little who cares, oh, come on, 
what's really classified anyway? What is the meaning of is? Um, and that's what the Clintons want. They want you to get dragged down into the who cares side of this. Not a big deal. Not the end of the world. Let's stop making a big thing of this. Right? There's that part of it. There's that component. Or you can look at this and say, well, there's so much of the bureaucracy, of the federal machinery that has been brought into Clinton's web of corruption and really is is colluding with the Clintons, or at least we think was willing to consider collusion. Um, the FBI, Comey, DOJ, State Department, uh, you go down the list. I mean, these are all the powerful agencies. I mean, granted, I don't think Hillary has yet completely destroyed the integrity of the Department of Interior, but it's not like she wouldn't. She just hasn't had a chance yet. So I don't want to underestimate her powers uh, to destroy. I'm sure she could find a way uh, to bring about the uh, the utter and complete corruption of the Department of the Interior. I, I think that's well within Hillary's uh, Hillary's skill set. And I do think she gets a certain joy out of all this, too. Uh, I think that's actually how I think that money, power and getting away with things are what make the Clintons tick. There's something else that makes Bill tick, but family show and we're not going to get into that kind of stuff now. But he also has some other things. Um, but Hillary is clearly uh, or was sending out surrogates, which is just her doing. I mean, it's just people doing this on her behalf trying to change the classification process. Now, not only does this undermine the impartiality or the, the belief that we should have that there's an impartiality with uh, the FBI. And look, the FBI didn't go for this, although later on you had Comey step in, and we've talked about this a lot, Comey step in and, and effectively bail out Hillary by saying that uh, no, no prosecutor would bring charges. Meanwhile, that's, he's not a prosecutor, and that's not his call, as we know. Those are just facts. He can he can try to uh, deny that as much as he wants, but those are facts, and those are the realities of the situation. It was not his role; it was not his call. He decided to step in and do that anyway. This is not something that would have happened for a non-Clinton, as we know. We've been over all of that quite a bit. The very classification process itself, though, uh, which I know people will tell you has some areas of gray into it, but or has some areas of gray, uh, that is undermined in all of this. Because if it's really just a question uh, of, of, an ab- of a judgment call, if it's just, well, maybe this is something, maybe this is nothing all the time, then none of it matters. So the Clintons not content to pollute charitable giving with the Clinton Foundation, to destroy any credibility that the Department of Justice has as a nonpartisan, nonpoliticized organization, they really undermine, or Hillary specifically undermines, the foundation of national security secrecy itself here. Because she does give off the belief that this is it's it's all up for negotiation. No matter what the information is, no matter what's contained in those emails, it's just a question of making the right case or just a question of asking the right people to reassign the classification level or to declassify it and make your problems go away. Uh, you'll notice also just as an aside here, that those of us who were saying from the very beginning, because we're familiar with how these processes work, that Hillary clearly had classified on her systems, that she's going to eventually this will come out and she'll have to admit it. Uh, No one 
seems to care that initially the media was so skeptical of this. You know, I remember once being told on TV, well, that that Hillary having classified in her email is a violation of law. I remember being told, well, that's just your opinion. I remember saying, no, it's not just my opinion. That's not an opinion. And it is a violation of law. That's different than she'll be prosecuted for it. Right. Having unclassified on a or having classified rather on an unclassified server is against the law. But they gave her this additional benefit of, well, it was unintentional. Therefore, we won't prosecute. And as I've said to you, that's not that's not a defense that will work for you. That will work for me. Um, This Patrick Kennedy guy, who apparently has been kind of a fixer for the Clintons for quite a while. um, He's in the latest interview summaries from this FBI uh, investigation. And this shows just that the it, 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 think about it this way. If Patrick Kennedy had said to the FBI, hey, uh, look, you got to declassify these emails. I've got a couple of Rolexes in this bag for you. If you do, we'd all say, well, he's got to go to prison. That's bribing federal officers on an issue of uh, of importance to their investigation or just bribing federal officers, period. But on a material issue and a national security investigation. So, you know, people got to go to jail for that. You can't do that. But by trying to sort of sweet talk them with bureaucraties, which, as I explained to you yesterday, really does mean dollars and cents for FBI agents. Right. It, it, more overseas slots is is a sweetener. It, well, what if he was just offering to promote the person who did this or give out a number of promotions, which, by the way, when you're in the government, you get promoted, you get paid more money, just like a lot of other jobs. Then would we say that was an, an, illegal, uh, an illegal interference in all of this? That he thought he could do this should tell us a lot about how clearly biased the process was in the first place. Would it ever occur to you to try to bribe an FBI official in this manner? Would you say, hey, look, I know I'm under investigation for some national security stuff. I know it doesn't look good, but uh, I think a couple of... Benjamins uh, of the Franklin variety on the table should make this go away. I mean, that might work if you're at like a resort in Mexico. But if you're talking to the FBI, chances are that's just going to get you in a whole lot more trouble. And we all know that. And Patrick Kennedy, as a senior State Department official, clearly is aware of the rules and regulations that govern FBI conduct and that also govern his conduct as a senior government official and the laws that they are all bound by. But they were operating in this special area. You see, it's like friends of Hillary. When, when you're a friend of Hillary, you get this cloak of invincibility that is thrown around your shoulders. You're able to do things that other normal Americans can't do as long as you're acting on Hillary's behalf. Now, this is more than just the election that, well, we're, I'm worried about more than just the election with all this stuff. I can just tell already that people have uh, the emails. I mean, look, we've talked about it a ton here. I can tell it's not going to have the impact needed to change the election. There's no way. If Trump's going to win this thing, it's going to have to be by some miracle that is unforeseeable to me right now. Maybe you all, y'all, I will say it, y'all have some ideas about that, but I do not. I have no idea at this point how he can pull this off. I'm not saying he can. I just just don't know how he does. But I'm also concerned about what the government looks like with Hillary Clinton in charge. And I mean from the perspective of— Score settling. Uh, I think that there will be, um, and it, it'll be the sort of thing where it's obvious and it's blatant, and the Clintons will just deny it, and the media will pretend like it's not obvious and blatant, but they're going to go after people. 
uh, Hillary does take this stuff personally. Uh, Hillary and Bill do have enemies lists, whether written or just in their heads. But they're going to want to settle some scores, and if she becomes ex-president of the United States, she's already tainted the Justice Department. So just think of who they can, or just think of how she can use the, the DOJ for her own purposes and benefit here. You know, it, it's like once you've sort of sullied your hands, this is this is classic, um, a classic means of sort of uh, recruitment into any criminal enterprise. You just get somebody to start doing minor illegal things, and all of a sudden you say to them, and this is a, a police corruption often works this way too and if you've seen serpico any of those movies also american gangster uh you know the, the bad guys just need you to start taking a little money and then before you know it you're like carrying the money for them and you know your your hired muscle and you're supposed to be a police officer because once you've broken that seal of trust once you're no longer somebody who's acting in an ethical fashion your ethics are much more malleable this is true of the Department of Justice. I mean, if Comey stays on as FBI head, maybe Loretta Lynch stays on for a couple of years at DOJ, I think the Clintons are going to have some housekeeping that they're going to go for. I think they're going to make examples of people. I think that they're going to do some things that are going to really send shockwaves through whatever's left of the conservative movement and conservative media because they're just going to have to make examples of a few. As I've said to you many times, you don't have to – Excuse me. You don't have to burn down all the villages. You just have to burn down one, and usually the rest get the message. They're going to burn down some villages. You have somebody who is wildly unethical, uh, who is vindictive, who is obviously inconsiderate and unkind. And I know that sounds like I'm trying to make a case against her for like the Miss Congeniality Award, but those sorts of things do matter. Uh, she's unethical. She's nasty. And she's going to have a tremendous amount of power and influence. And more than that, she'll have all of these enablers and assistants and cronies and people to whom either she owes favors or who uh, owe favors to her. And this whole apparatus is going to be in charge. They're going to come after those who don't agree with them. They're going to use the law as a weapon. We already saw this with Obama and the IRS. By the way, was there any accountability for that whatsoever? Absolutely not. They understand how bureaucracy works because, of course, Democrats, who are the party of the state, favor the bureaucracy. They want a large and ever larger bureaucracy that will have tremendous power, the power to stamp out whatever individual rights you think you have left and make you a part of their progressive collective. It's discouraging. It's very discouraging. I kind of want to maybe go into a segment after this about puppies or something because – there's a part of me that just wants this election to be over, but then there's a part of me that also has the foresight to recognize that if this election over means Hillary Clinton's the next president of the United States, we've got some big problems to tackle. Yeah, we still can order Chinese food, watch Netflix, you know, hug our families and play with our dogs in the yard, although I don't have a dog, which makes me sad. Uh, but we're going to have problems as a country, and we are going to also, I think, have walked even further down a path where politically – we we are we are lacking we are a country that lacks integrity in our political system in a way that makes cynicism not just more prevalent but necessary and quite honestly i think we're heading towards disdain i'm i'm moving beyond being cynical about our government to just being openly disdainful of our government cannot be trusted uh cannot be empowered to do the things that it's supposed to do without fear of it going 
you know, off the reservation and uh, creating for itself little additional fiefdoms, hunting down people who disagree with it, who get in the way. This is what the Clintons will do. It is not going to be a pretty picture. Um, anyway, I'll go into a break here. We'll be back. Stay with me. Lex Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Interesting. From the Independent. I just want to talk about something that wasn't too serious for a second, if you don't mind. Uh, according to a men's health, men's health survey, more than half of guys trim or shave their leg hair. That's not a thing that I was aware of. I, I can honestly say I have never trimmed or shaved my leg hair. Usually this is something that's associated with uh, swimmers or cyclists. And I wonder, does it really, I mean, does it really make that much of a difference if you're a cyclist, whether you have hairy legs or not? I guess. I don't know. I, I, don't, know I, I don't like cycling. I don't like biking particularly. Um, but this has now become quite a trend. It's 15% com- uh, completely shave their legs. 33% use a trimmer. On their legs. This is of men overall, according to this men's health survey. Have you ever tried this? I've I've never I've never given this a go as as a dude. I didn't know that this was I didn't know this was a thing. But then again, I'm learning new things all the time. People are 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 uh, are, are hairscaping their legs, and uh, I wonder if they start to go the route of you know carving in initials or anything like that. No, that would be dumb, Buck. Uh, they are doing this though. So there's new things happening all around us. The world is a fascinating place, my friends, with all sorts of things going on. I do know that the guys on my crew team, uh, when I rode in college, some of them were leg shavers. And I was like, is it for crew? Really? We're going we're gonna to do that for the crew team? And they're like, oh, yeah, well, it's, well, you know, it's also for the off-season when I'm a cyclist. I was like, okay. I mean, look, it's fine. I'm not judging. I just thought it was interesting. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with shaving your legs as a dude. I'm just saying... It's a choice that some people make, and more and more are making now. You know, you got almost half, according to this survey, which to me seems like seems like a lot. Um, and as somebody who's just now exploring the depths of, of man beardness and whether I can use the uh, the trimmers correctly, I have to say, you know, ladies, it's a it's a real thing to have to keep doing the leg shaving. I can understand that this is like upkeep, and this requires effort. You know. I get so lazy sometimes I don't even brush my teeth before I go to bed. I shouldn't, I shouldn't admit these things. That's rarely, though. I have very good teeth. Very, very, very few problems with my teeth. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. So this is just my break, my mental break from Hillary and the election and everything else. We're going to go deep into some real stuff in a, in a few moments here and talk about more of the Yemeni civil war. I'll probably talk to you a bit about Mosul. So some national security coming up in the third hour, as is our... I wouldn't say our way. It's something, something of a tradition here in the Freedom Hut that the third hour is at least a period when we get into some NATSEC uh, of some kind. You'll notice, though, I've spent uh, not that much time today on Trump's lady problem comments, all that stuff. So we're doing a good job, I think. Nor have we focused in entirely on the debate tomorrow, because we'll do a little more of that tomorrow. 
We've got a lot more on Yemen and Mosul. Stay with me. Back in a few. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, it's time for some national security. Time for a Buck Brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief. We're joined now by Catherine Zimmerman. She's a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the research manager for AEI's Critical Threats Project. She's an expert on Yemen, and we're going to talk to her about it. Catherine, thank you for calling in. Thank you for having me. Uh, All right. So we have a latest news here is that there's a a ceasefire, a 72-hour ceasefire that's been agreed to among the parties in Yemen's civil war. There's also been uh, some missiles fired at a U.S. destroyer off the coast of Yemen. This is getting a lot of attention from people. First off, the ceasefire, uh, what, what spurred this and what can we take out of this? I think that the reason that we're seeing a ceasefire today is actually as a result of the U.S. action after the missiles were fired um, against the U.S. Navy destroyer. What we're seeing is the Al-Houthi Salah faction. That's the group that seized control of the government in September 2014 and precipitated the events that, that started the civil war in Yemen they are playing nice right now, and they released two Americans and have also agreed to the ceasefire as a show of good faith. What are the factions for everybody listening? Yemen has not been getting a lot of attention in the media in recent months, obviously with Trump and the election and everything else going on. Who are the, who are the warring factions right now inside, uh, inside Yemen, and who's backing them? It's, it's very complex inside Yemen, and I think one of the reasons that it hasn't gotten much traction is it's hard to say who the good guys are. Um, so we have the Al-Houthi Salah faction that I mentioned. Uh, the, this is a combination of the former Yemeni president ousted in the Arab Spring, Salah, and his, his forces, and then the Al-Houthis, who are a Zaydi Shia group in North Yemen that have received support from Iran, which includes the sending of missiles to Yemen along with some training and resources. Um, they are one faction. They control most of North, North Yemen and actually the majority of the population. They have a strong base of support. They are aligned against the Hadi government. Um, this is the internationally recognized government, and it's based out of Aden today. Um, most of the government is still operating a little bit from exile because Aden is not quite secure. Aden is a southern city in Yemen, one of the major port cities. And the Hadi government doesn't have a strong constituency, so a lot of various factions have tied up with it, um, including southerners who actually are looking for secession or more autonomy. Um, and... They're receiving support from Saudi Arabia, the Emirates. The, the Gulf Arab states are backing this coalition very strongly. And then, of course, there's al-Qaeda and ISIS that both have a footprint in Yemen. ISIS is very small, and al-Qaeda is much stronger. Those two are fighting both governments, and it's creating a very complex dynamic on the ground. So we have, we have a, former, what is it, a, a former president aligned with a Shia rebel faction, the Houthis, 
who are receiving support from Iran fighting against mm-hmm. the Hadi government, which is internationally recognized, which receives uh, support, including airstrikes, I mean, actual military uh, alliance and assistance um, from Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Arab states. And you have a group of jihadists, mostly al-Qaeda, also some Islamic State fighters operating on Ye- on the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, fighting against both of those other two uh, groups, right? So you've sort of got three main factions all going, uh, all going at each other uh, in Yemen right now. Is that a, is that a, a pretty fair breakdown of it? That is, and just to add to the complexity, some of the Al Qaeda fighters are providing direct support to some of the the local tribal militias who are fighting the Al Houthi Salah faction. Um, so it gets much more complicated as you look at actually how the war itself is being fought, um, and everyone is seeking their own interests and are framing it under this national conflict. But really what we're seeing is a regional conflict and local-level conflict mixing into the civil war. Now, I think obviously this this got a lot more attention in the last few days because, as as we mentioned a few minutes ago, you had Houthi rebels firing missiles uh, or firing rockets off at a U.S. destroyer, I believe it was, and uh, the destroyer responded and hit a few sites. Now, why would... Houthi rebels with the backing of Iran, who are in the midst of their own, you know, internecine squabble here, in the midst of their own civil war, why would they take a shot at a U.S. cruiser? I mean, did they, they hit a, what was it, an Emirati, I think it was a catamaran or something uh, mm-hmm. previously? Um, yes. but, the, but the Emiratis are flying airstrikes, right? Or at least they're assisting the Saudis who are flying airstrikes. So that sort of, you understand why they would go for that. Now they've got the United States look at them saying, what are you guys doing? What possible rationale could the Houthi rebels have had for firing on the United States uh, Navy? So that's the real question. And we have yet to see any statement confirming that it was indeed just the Houthi uh, rebels or or individuals firing the missiles. Um, I think that when we're looking at the motivations, there really is no gain for the Houthis to draw the United States into a war inside of Yemen. But for Iran, the calculus is very, very different, where posturing in the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf um, has been significant for Iran. It's increasingly trying to force the United States out of the region, and it's also contesting Saudi Arabia and, and the Saudi Navy as well. Now, what stage of the conflict are we in right now? Is this is this at a as much of a conflagration as it has been? Does it feel like it's... I, mean, I know there's a ceasefire here, but in general, is it... Is the fighting as as is it at sort of a high point? Does it look like there's some political settlement on the horizon? Is the United States possibly going to get pulled more into this thing? Where do you see this going? I don't see there. Uh, I don't see a political solution on the horizon simply because the factions on the ground, so the the Houthi Salah faction against the Hadi government faction, neither of them are are willing to make concessions to reach that solution. And the shape of what the next government would be is is a real point of contention. I think we're going to see the ceasefire expire without real progress on the political front. The other problem with the ceasefire and using it as a framework for negotiations is that it doesn't deal with the regional conflicts, the the Saudi-Iranian conflict that is increasingly becoming intermixed with the Yemeni civil war. And what it also doesn't do is deal with the local conflicts so the question of what various 
geographic regions in Yemen, what their relationship with the central government will be, and who is the power broker who's in, in control of those regions. Those questions are actually being fought out in the civil war today, and they are not part of any of the negotiations that are ongoing. So the U.S. role in this up to this point has been what, and what do you think it's going to become under the next administration? The U.S. role has been relatively limited. We have been supporting the Saudi-led coalition, primarily providing intelligence and logistics support for the for the airstrikes. Um, we did reduce the amount of support that we've been giving Saudi Arabia because of how Saudi Arabia has prosecuted the campaign, but didn't eliminate it. And then the United States has been very focused on the counterterrorism operation that is ongoing inside of Yemen, fighting al-Qaeda. The Emiratis have been a key partner on the ground in, in fighting AQAP, al-Qaeda in the Raven Peninsula, taking back some of the major cities that, that al-Qaeda controlled. And really, the United States is trying to remain as much out of the war as possible. The problem is, our actions are being perceived to be one-sided, where our missile strikes against the al Houthi Salah forces um, were seen as an attack against them because and in support of the Saudi-led coalition. So even even a, a retaliatory action like that uh, filters into the or when it filters through the thinking in the region, it's that the U.S. is back in the Saudis and the Saudis have had some problems, right? There was the uh, there was a pretty big airstrike killed 140 people and and injured 600 others at a funeral, and the Saudis were more or less like, "Yeah, sorry, bad intel." That's a lot of people to get killed with bad intel. It's a lot of people, and you know the Saudis should have taken responsibility earlier. And there's been a lot of criticism, rightly levied against how Saudi Arabia has pursued its its airstrike campaign in Yemen. For a couple of things to realize, the United States, when we prosecute a similar air campaign, we are much more risk averse in terms of civilian deaths than, than other countries are. Um, the other thing is, you know, even were the U the U S to withdraw all of its support and stop providing anything to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia will continue this fight. It must. Um, it's part of a succession crisis inside of the kingdom over who is the next king of Saudi Arabia. The defense minister, the king's son, this is his war, and he needs to come away with a victory. If he doesn't do that, if Saudi Arabia loses. Where do you see all of this going? Give me, give me, I, six, I, to give me six to 12 months from now. What does Yemen look like? What's happening? I think we still see this low-level conflict. It's not the sort of war that, the way that it is in Syria because, frankly, external actors haven't gotten involved in the same way. Um, but unless there's a concerted effort, we're going to see groups still armed, still fighting over the same issues. Um, one, of the, one of the primary concerns in Yemen right now is a growing humanitarian crisis, which is not talked about at all, which has been exacerbated by the war. And... International, the international community cannot deliver the necessary goods because of the security conditions inside of the country and because of the politicization of the distribution of aid. All right. Catherine Zimmerman is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and research manager for AEI's Critical Threats Project. Catherine, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for sharing your expertise. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, team phone lines are open. 888-900-3393. We'll be back in a few minutes. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network.
dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, the fight for Mosul is underway. We talked about it yesterday. It has been kicked off by the Iraqi military. There's U.S. Special Forces uh, advisors who are right there along with Kurdish Peshmerga and Iraqi army units, and they're trying to take this, uh, trying to take back Mosul, and they're starting with sort of the, the areas, outlying areas of the city. And they have, according to the BBC here, uh, finally retaken the Christian town of Karakosh, which is one of the places that had to completely flee during the initial, initial ISIS uh, insult, assault and invasion of Mosul in the surrounding area. As you know, the Christians have been targeted um, for extinction uh, in this part of Iraq. And in, in many parts of Iraq, and those communities will really never—they uh, will never recover. Um, they will—they've also seen the destruction of uh, some ancient churches and all sorts of artifacts in the area. I mean, the Islamic State just came in and were a bunch of invading barbarian lunatics, as we knew they would be. But that has included destroying uh, any number of cultural, religious, and uh, artistic treasures in the area. Um, the fighting, by the way, is is nasty, as we knew it would be. I actually posted, if you want to see some of it on Facebook, there's a, a clip of, you can just see, it looks like maybe some either Pesh uh, or some uh, Iraqi army units, and they're sweeping an area, and then all of a sudden, out of a, out of a tunnel, a suicide bomber pops up and detonates himself, and you actually have the video of it. So it's an it's an astonishing thing when you think about that that, that somebody could uh, decide that they have no chance of winning this battle, but they're so psychologically conditioned, so brainwashed, so full of hatred and evil, they would strap on a suicide vest and just try to uh, get as close to some of these uh, some of these fighters or some of these uh, military. Uh, some soldiers, Iraqi army, as they can, and and kill some of them before they, as they kill themselves. I mean, there's no chance they're going to come out of this alive. I mean, I, I remember very distinctly uh, spending some time with a friend from the special operations community, more of an acquaintance than a friend, um, but uh, seeing him after we had just we had been together uh, out for some some meetings uh, out in the red zone and. Then seeing him a couple of days later after being hit with ball bearings from a suicide bomber, very similar to what you see on this video, and you can see they made these little sort of circular holes, and he had them patched up. Uh, but this has been going on. I mean, this S vest suicide bombers in this area. This has been going on now for a decade, a decade plus, more than a decade, uh, and that they still have people that are willing to go and blow themselves up in some dirt patch outside of Mosul. As part of what exactly? What do they really think can be accomplished here? Uh, it just goes to show you the, the power of of evil. Evil thinking uh, is unfortunately very, very much alive and well. And we'll see what happens in Mosul. I, I, I'm concerned that there could be some major humanitarian consequences to this uh, that could then have a domino effect on other areas, other sort of outlying areas. I mean, the Kurds have already taken in a lot of uh, refugees and the Kurds are probably stretched as far as they're going to be uh, able to handle refugees and, and others. The UN is setting up tents. I've been in some of these tents. It is not, not these specific tents, but in tents and refugee camps in Jordan, as you know. And while the people in them are safe, it is, 
it is apparent immediately that this is a, a pretty depressing, as depressing a situation as you'll find really anywhere when you go into these refugee camps, people who have lost everything, they've lost their homes, in many cases they've lost family members. So I know the administration is going to hail this all as a, a great victory for Iraq. And as I've said, and, and it, we need to be you know, accurate and we need to be uh, fair in our analysis of national security matters, it is certainly a good thing that, uh, and worthy of uh, you know, praise for the Iraqi government and for the Kurds who are doing a tremendous amount to, to help that ISIS will no longer be in charge of this major city. There's no question about that. But the damage that's been done, uh, both to the people living there as well as to the reputation of the Iraqi government, is going to take a long time to undo. I mean, that, this, that this country that's had so much support from the United States military, so much support uh, from the international community, could lose its second largest city to an invading terrorist army and lose it for two years, mind you. Uh, it's been gone for a long time. And now I, I don't know what will really be left in Mosul. What, what happens? I, I suppose we can hope that the city returns to some level of normalcy for the people who live there and that there won't be continued insurgent attacks and that this will not be some sort of a, uh, a continuing festering sore uh, on the Iraqi state. That's certainly possible. Um, that's... I think the great hope that we have here, but keep in mind that the Islamic State still operates freely in large parts of Syria, still has its capital in Raqqa, and it's losing territory there, but it's uh, still very dangerous, has many fighters, uh, has been training them, and can get across the border. I mean, I've been to the Iraq-Syria border in this part of the world, and it's it's at best a dirt berm, usually. You can step on the one side, you can step on the other side. It's not hard to get across. And there's a very high likelihood that you'll see infiltrations uh, of suicide bombers and others, even after Mosul is officially cleared, uh, cleared by the Iraqi government forces, that you'll see people coming in who just want to sow death and chaos and destruction and undermine the Iraqi state and claim that it's only a matter of time before the caliphate seizes this once again. Uh, And then once you add also, once you add into all of this, the layers of, uh, Turkey watching the Kurds, the Kurds watching the Shia government in Baghdad, the Shia government in Baghdad taking orders from Iran, uh, the Russians and the Iranians looking at this from across the border in Syria. Many players, many cooks in this kitchen and plenty of ways for this thing to go south in a hurry. Um, and I, I do have to think that the, the timing of this, as I've said to you, is is uh, somewhat Suspicious. I, I will say, though, that as I was watching these videos or watching some of the, the footage coming out, including the video of the suicide bomber, a big part. I, mean, I know we have some U.S. troops that are in harm's way there, but it is it is a a good thing in, in my uh, you know in my estimation. It's good that the Iraqis are having to do this job largely themselves, uh, primarily themselves. Um, we, we can't we can't be clearing every house and sending in our guys to do all this work all over the world. So we'll see if the, Iraq- if the Iraqis are really up for the task here. This could get bogged down in a nasty fight for quite a while, and who knows uh, what the future of this country is going to be. I still think that the notion of Iraq as the Middle East Yugoslavia, meaning that eventually it'll get broken up into pieces through civil war and ethnic sectarian hatred, uh, that's, we're not yet out of the woods on that. It still could happen. Um, but first, they got to clear Mosul. We'll see where we are from there. 
All right, team. Uh, phone lines open, 888-900-3393. We've got a lot more. I'll be back in just a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're very happy to be joined by Kim Strassel. She is a columnist at the Wall Street Journal. She's the author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech. And her latest here at the Wall Street Journal is The Press Buries Hillary Clinton's Sins. Yes, indeed. Kim, great to have you as always. It is so great to be here, Buck. Thank you. So, uh, so tell me a bit about what are we missing? Other, you know, if we, if, if as you point out in your piece, you see Donald Trump said some gross stuff about women uh, a while ago. But there's other things happening, including some revelations about Madame Secretary. Please do share. I, I don't know how many hours do we have. <laughs> it's just extraordinary. There is so much coming out, but you won't read it in hardly any newspapers. You know, we have, for instance, evidence uh, that Mrs. Clinton wasn't truthful. Uh, remember, you go back and she said how happy she was to be turning over all these emails to the State Department. She couldn't wait for them to be released to the public so that people could see all the hard work she'd done. Instead, behind the scenes, because of these WikiLeaks revelations, we now see that her staff was working to figure out just how many of them they could make sure never saw the light of day, how they could potentially evade a congressional subpoena requiring her to turn over the information. Uh, We have more documents that came out last week showing that uh, State Department officials were indeed giving special privileges to Clinton Foundation donors, in particular those that were offering uh, aid for for, uh, Haiti earthquake relief. They were being put into a special line where they might have got teed up for contracts. Um, We have revelations from the FBI, uh, unnamed FBI officials who are now saying that indeed uh, the the decision to not prosecute Mrs. Clinton was made from the top down, uh, that normal protocols were not followed, that the vast majority of the agents felt that she should have had a a recommendation of prosecution. So there's, there's a lot out there. There's a lot out there, and yet all we see is a constant drumbeat of not only uh, you know Trump and the women in the lewd remarks, but also the press is saying this is all over. I mean, not all of the press, obviously, but the, most of the press is saying this is over. Um, this is there's no way Trump can come back from any of this. I mean, they're already sort of measuring the drapes for Hillary's White House. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's one thing to note what travails Mr. Trump might be having in his campaign, uh, to not note the travails that Mrs. Clinton has from a, a legal or ethical perspective. It's another to preordain the outcome of an election. And in doing so, I mean, this is very potentially malicious and, and interfering, Buck, in that you know they could be discouraging people from going to the polls. Um, and, and making it a foregone conclusion that she wins. So it, I think it's highly irresponsible reporting all around. And, you know, we have a story that came out this week, too, from an independent watchdog group. They looked at FEC records to find that, you know, vast amounts of money have been donated to Mrs. Clinton's campaign by journalists 
you know, and that I think something like 90%, 96% of all the money given uh, in the presidential campaign by journalists have been given exclusively to her. <laughs> so it's not a surprise that many Americans are losing any sense of trust in the media. Why do you think it is that even given that fact, which is important for everybody to, to hear and it should be reiterated time and again that the media is to say it's overwhelmingly pro Clinton is, is really an understatement. But we do have this information that's out there now about all the things you've listed, right, whether it's the corruption and the Haiti contracting or uh, Hillary's email server or just the way that the Democratic Party elites view voters with a certain degree of disdain they see them as almost like children that need to be placated and the sort of different groups of the children that need to be placated it doesn't seem to affect her though you know none of this stuff seems to catch on is that just a function of there's not the media echo chamber to make it sink in or do people just not care or does it pale in comparison to the trump stuff why isn't any of this having any impact I think the media point really does matter. I mean, you and I both know, because we work in journalism circles, that uh, the point about media bias, it's, it's not just whether or not you write an article and the, and the actual writing of it is biased against. It's what you choose to drive the narrative with. It's what you choose to put on the front page and make a story out there every day. And, you know, the press's excuses, well, we've been writing some pieces about the WikiLeaks uh, documents. We've been writing a little bit about the FBI. The reality is that these stories are put on page 25. They're buried inside. They're not given the attention. If you pick up the New York Times on an average day, there are six negative stories about Donald Trump on the front page. You have to go digging to find anything about Hillary Clinton. And so it's not driving the narrative. I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is, and this is more disturbing to me, there are many Americans that weirdly have just internalized the idea that the Clintons are in some way unethical and, and ever so slightly corrupt, and so it's almost as if they've discounted it. Right. There's nothing that the Clintons at this point, or nothing that could come out about them that would shock. I've been worried about this all along, that we've almost been forced to be numb to the Clintons' corruption and the way that they do business because it has been going on for so long. I mean, quite honestly, the, the fact that the main line of attack on Donald Trump is that he is a, a misogynist who sort of gropes and mistreats women when you have Hillary Clinton's husband with a long and storied history of misogyny, of groping women, of worse than groping women. Uh, and yet I, I can't remember the last time. I don't know if it's happened. But no one seems to be sitting Hillary Clinton down saying, is your is your husband, uh, is he guilty of sexual assault? Well, that question has not been asked, as far as I know, in the entirety of this uh, election cycle. No one has just been sitting out there as a softball, especially it's almost as if, I mean, this is a question she invites on almost a daily basis because she has, of course, decided to orient her entire campaign around the argument that Donald Trump is vicious uh, or uh, disrespectful to women, that he doesn't care about the plight of women. And, of course, if you look at conservative circles, people are asking all the time, begging the press to, when sitting with her in an interview or during a debate, for instance, as we're going to have tomorrow night, to say, you know, how do you justify this? What do you say to, to Bill Clinton's accusers, to the women uh, who we know you've, in fact, even settled with at times? So there seems to be some admission of guilt there. What do you say to them about them? Uh, it's such an easy one, and yet the press will not go there by and large. And, and we've seen Melania just last night did a sit-down with Anderson Cooper 
answering questions about his treatment about Trump, you know, her husband's treatment of women, and you know, she's and she's doing this not in her first language, which I think is worth pointing out, and, and she's having to sort of stand there and and d- defend him against all these accusations. I I've never seen I've never seen Hillary in this election cycle sit down and have to defend Bill Clinton for any of the things he did in the in the past, whether it's Monica or Jennifer Flowers or anything else. How has that been taken off the table as an issue, given that the main issue against Trump seems to be that he's so mean to women? I don't know how how many things have been taken off the table. It's it's an extraordinary thing. Look, look at the FBI documents that just came out this week, for instance. In any other environment, this ought to be the most enormous scandal. If you go and you read through this, you find out that Patrick Kennedy, the Undersecretary of the State Department, was exerting immense pressure on the FBI to downgrade a document so that it wasn't classified anymore, it was unclassified. He was working on behalf of the Democratic nominee to to extract Hillary Clinton from her classification problems. We've found out all kinds of details about how this process was actually run at the State Department. There were lawyers who were overseeing all of her emails who had, in a prior life, both worked at the same law firm as Mrs. Clinton's current lawyer. So, you know, I mean, this is not how government is supposed to work. We have a taxpayer-funded agency, taxpayer-funded employees who seem to be pulling all on the same oar to help a Democratic nominee get elected to the White House by covering up her misbehavior. Uh, and we have a press that seems utterly uninterested in covering that story. Do you think that the debate tomorrow night can be a, a game-changer in terms of the polls and where we see the election going? Or do you think that at this point it's... It's uh, going to take more than just that to turn Donald's fortunes around. Well, look, for one thing, I'm not sure we know where we are exactly. You do have, as you said, all of these, the drive-by media all saying it's over, it's done. The polls certainly show her at a seven-point average lead out there. And by any fair reading, it would suggest, in fact, that he would have grave difficulty turning around this election. The tough part about this is that what we don't know, for instance, is how many people out there are these kind of crowds of Trump voters? They have not voted before. Are they going to turn out on Election Day? Does that skew the polls in some way? I mean, or does it thwart the kind of polling in some way? Uh, Will she have the enthusiasm of her own base, given some of these WikiLeaks revelations out there showing how dismissive, as you pointed out, her campaign team is of Bernie Sanders supporters, of of the minorities that she claims to represent. So I'm not quite sure we have a real sense of the ground game and how it unfolds on Election Day. But in terms of the debate, that certainly seems to be Donald Trump's strategy. He seems to think there are untapped stores of voters that he can get to turn out because that seems to be the uh, the basis behind his, his slash-and-burn campaign at the moment. Would you think, is it fair to say, Kim, for you, uh, is this the most policy-free general election campaign <laughs> you've, you've, you've ever covered, or is there anything else come close to this? No. I mean, we what policies, what issues? I can't even think about the last time one of the candidates mentioned them. <laughs> it, it is utterly policy-free, and it's a great shame for the American public because they care about the issues. And they are at the moment stuck with you know two candidates, neither of whom are talking about 
the bread and butter concerns of the average American and a press who is happily sort of stoking all the flames of a personality-driven contest. And, and again, it's the voters who are losing out. It's, it's a real pity. Now, now you, you work at the Wall Street Journal, so you deal with the, the journalism, journalism types. I mean, outside, outside of the Wall Street Journal, I'm sure you've got friends, colleagues, acquaintances. Do you ever get the chance just off the record? And no, no names or anything. I'm just wondering, do you ever get the chance to sort of just – you know, poke somebody who works for the Times or any of these places, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post or any of these places and just say, I mean, you guys know that this is ridiculous what you're doing, right? Like, you know that this isn't like journalism. Do you ever get that chance? I'm just wondering. Is that something? I, they I won't talk to know, people so- like me. I'm right wing. I try not to poke them, and I have a lot of colleagues. My my theory, by the way, on media bias is is not in all my years, and I have worked with many fine journalists who work on you know the news side of organizations, and um, very few have I ever met in my life who I would say are overtly political and abuse their position to overtly try to help one political side. The problem is actually far more subtle and therefore worrisome in that you have masses of journalists who work at these newspapers who do not even realize that they are biased. They all come out of the same schools. They all grew up in the same environment. They're all slightly left to center. All the people they associate all think the same way they do. It's like that famous Pauline Kale you know, statement up in New York, I never met anyone who voted for Richard Nixon. Right. Uh, because she never left Manhattan. <laughs> so, you know, this is part of the bubble problem of journalism these days, and uh, the the unknowing of the bias is, is almost worse than a knowing bias. Last one for you, Kim, before we let you go. I, I've had this theory I've been saying for a while here on the show that I believe that journalists, many journalists actually think that it is their ethical duty to cast aside normal journalists' impartiality to prevent Trump from becoming the next president, that, that, that it is the ethical thing to do. It's not just their preference. It's actually they have a moral obligation to stop Trump. Do you see any of that? Do you agree with any of that? Or do you think that's going too far? Oh, no, I do think we've reached that stage at, at this point in the election, that the press has weirdly uh, adopted a crusading stance that somehow they need to be the savior of this country. And to the extent they had any neutrality before, the pretense of that has been very well dropped and and you see that in the coverage and again in the choice of what to cover and it's they're doing grave damage not just to their institution but again i think to the country because when the public loses faith in just basic institutions you know look who can have any faith right now in the Department of Justice, given how this Hillary Clinton operation rolled? Who can have much faith in the in the presidency, given the lack of respect for implementing or, or instituting laws uh, and uh, and just making up new ones as you go along? Now we have this incredible new failure of faith in the press, uh, and it sets the country up, I think, for very upsetting and potentially anarchic times. All right. Kim Strassel is the author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech. It's available in bookstores and on Amazon. And she's a columnist of the Wall Street Journal. Kim, great to have you. Thank you so much for calling in. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, back in a few. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, real quick, a story that I didn't get a chance to get to earlier. Uh, this uh, a gunman with a with a, I think with a AR and a uh, bulletproof vest on tried to kill two cops out in California. He ran into a Starbucks where there are two police officers, pointed his weapon at them, and went to fire and click. He uh, the weapon malfunctioned. He had a malfunction. Both the officers were fine. They were actually chased and returned fire, and the uh, assailant is now in custody, shot but not killed, but his gun jammed. Otherwise, we would have had two more officers assassinated. There's some uh, speculation about his motive at this point, but we're not. Uh, there's. Uh, I don't have time to get too far into the details on it. But anyway, I just, what an incredible story. I can't imagine. I mean, think about that. You're just having coffee, and some guy runs up with, a, with a, an AR and, just happens the gun just happens to jam maybe he had the safety on or something i don't know uh anyway team um great as always to have you here tomorrow obviously we'll have some debate prep to do together we'll do that and also updates on the offensive in mosul and everything else that is worth our time it is an honor and a pleasure to be with you as always here in the freedom hunt shields high the buck sexton show only on the blaze radio network